Genesis twenty-five twenty-three, And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Welcome to Walking Through the Book. I'm Stephen McCrary. And I'm Bryant Bales. And today we want to talk with you about the Bible. Specifically, we want to discuss Genesis chapter 25 with you today. Walking Through the Book is all about these three things, encouraging Bible reading, demonstrating proper and responsible study of the Bible, and emphasizing what the text says, no more and no less. We want to make sure that what we're sharing with you is good and useful for you and your development in the Lord and growing in His grace and in the knowledge of Him. We want to be useful in that. So thank you so much for listening today. Uh, We have been sort of absent over the past couple of weeks, and our apologies for that, but uh, it gets to a busy time of the year around December and January, so... uh, I know Bryant has been on the road a little bit, and uh, I've just kind of been keeping the home fires burning, you might say. Just uh... Wow, Stephen, it is really snowing here. Sorry. It's like, it's really, really snowing. Like, even in Minnesota, this would be heavy snow. Coming down pretty hard, huh? Yeah. No snow for us, just a lot of cold. So mm-hmm. much cold. But uh, be that as it may... Uh, before we start, we do want to let you know how to get in touch with us. On Facebook, you can find us at Walking Through the Book, or you can email us at uh, walkingthroughthebook at protonmail.com, or find us at our the website that is normally hosting this podcast of the North Columbus Church of Christ, which is northcolumbuschristians.com. Uh, also, you can find Bryant's info at gardencitycoc.org, uh, but we encourage you to, to visit uh, in Columbus, Mississippi, if you're ever in town, North Columbus Church of Christ, NorthColumbusChristians.com. Brian, why don't you go over a little bit of the flow of the program and uh, uh, let everybody know where you preach and where they can visit you. Yeah, so uh, I, I'm working as an evangelist at the Garden City Church of Christ in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, if you're ever in the area on vacation, um, check us out. We're uh, about 10 minutes east, or I'm sorry, not east, but west of the Savannah uh, downtown area. And we have a Facebook page if you want to look us up on Facebook as well. And I think uh, Stephen mentioned GardenCityCOC.org uh, is the domain name for the website. And what we're what we're doing is uh, just really, really simple but very powerful. I know Stephen and I have talked with each other about um, just how much we uh, personally are getting out of this study. Um, Genesis really just continues to come alive, and we just get more and more out of it the farther into this podcast that we go. And so uh, we hope that you're getting um, as much and even more out of listening to this discussion that we're having. Um, so we're just reading through Genesis chapter by chapter and picking out some initial observations that we gain from just kind of reading over the text. Uh, and after that, we look at some themes that we might um, 
that we might have noticed uh, in Genesis that kind of relate to maybe the broader picture of the book itself, but um, even overall with things that connect to the broader picture of the Bible in general. And we always try to conclude with some uh, some brief applications uh, that we can draw out of the text as well, because um, with everything in God's Word, there there is always a way to make it make it more personal. And, and that's, that's really the way that we ought to look at it is not just trying to look at some general things, but how do we look into God's word in a way that gives us an understanding of how we can, we can change, how we can view, uh, how we can view God and, and view ourselves in a much more personal way. And so, um, that's, that's the outline for what we'll be doing, uh, today and, uh, how we'll be just kind of generally handling this podcast. And of course, uh, we we follow our typical format, and uh, that's a reading, and then our initial observations, then the theme, then the application. Um, I really feel like the segmented format really helps um, to me. I mean, I I think an important thing if you're going to do podcasting is to, from time to time, try to listen to your own podcast, as uh, disruptive as that might be, or or uh, because I I don't really necessarily like listening to my own voice sometimes um but because i'm just like oh you know (laughs) do i really sound like that but uh but then you know it's important to kind of make sure that uh you know that what you're saying is 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 of course right that's the most important thing but the effective communication you want to make sure about that so i do think things are going well um again uh, thankful for you listening and uh, we're going to be looking at Genesis 25. There's a lot of important questions for us to consider out of this, and uh, Bryant will be reading through that out of the New King James Version, Bryant? Yep, I'll be reading out of the New King James. Very good. We'll start into that reading. Genesis chapter 25. Abraham again took a wife, and her name was Keturah. And she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shuah. Jokshan begot Sheba and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Latushim, and Leumin. And the sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephur, Hanak, Abida, and Eldeah. All these were the children of Keturah. And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward, away from Isaac his son, to the country of the east. This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life which he lived, one hundred and seventy-five years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried, and Sarah his wife. 
And it came to pass, after the death of Abraham, that God blessed his son Isaac. And Isaac dwelt at Be'er Lahai Roy. Now this is the genealogy of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, bore to Abraham. And these are the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names, according to their generations. The firstborn of Ishmael, Nebajoth, then Kedar, Abdiel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massah, Hedar, Tima, Jetur, Nephish, and Kedema. These were the sons of Ishmael, and these were their names, by their towns and their settlements, twelve princes according to their nations. These were the years of the life of Ishmael, one hundred and thirty-seven years, and he breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people. They dwelt from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt as you go toward Assyria. He died in the presence of all his brethren. This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was forty years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah his wife conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled for, for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau. Afterward his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was sixty years old when she bore them. So the boys grew. And Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, Look, I am about to die. So what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, Swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him, and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose, and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So, going into initial observations for this particular chapter, um, I know, Brent, we've talked a good bit uh, before recording about a few of the things going on in this chapter. And, of course, we pair a lot of chapters, but we really wanted to look and kind of pick apart some of the elements in this particular chapter. And uh, one of the things that I kind of noticed as we were looking at it, it just sort of hit me that here's Abraham and what are we as we study through the Old Testament what becomes actually pretty common 
really starting, I think, with Jacob is this idea that we see of polygamy, um, where a man obviously has multiple mm-hmm. wives, at least at least two wives. Um, and but but I noticed, I guess I'd never thought about this before, the fact that Abraham is taking another wife, but this is after Sarah has already died. Uh, so I just right. find that kind of interesting that here's Abraham and he's not entering into that, that concept. And similarly, his son, Isaac, uh, is only going to be with, uh, with Rebecca. Yeah, that is interesting. Cause, uh, you know, a concubine is not the same thing as a wife and Jacob, um, Leah and Rachel were both, you know, legitimate wives to, uh, to Jacob so it is interesting, and yeah, I'd never really taken note of that either. That uh, uh, that Abraham took Keturah after uh, Sarah had died, um, and it's really, really interesting. It just kind of a detail that yeah, I haven't noted that either. Well, and just for the sake of our listeners too, I mean, we we want to kind of line in a little bit of what, uh, for example, Romans seven talks about the fact that if a if a woman's husband dies. Uh, it's the idea that that bond is released or that bond is broken and she is free to remarry at that point is the idea is that she's not, that's not her husband anymore. That, that bond, that, that relationship is no more once death has happened. And that's why people say in marriage till death do us part. And so, uh, generally I think we have, uh, you know, a sense where Abraham, obviously we know that the whole point of these things uh, is just what Jesus says to um, to the Jews in you know places like Matthew five and Matthew nineteen, especially Matthew nineteen, where he's saying you know Moses lets you divorce your wives for any reason, but from the beginning God made them male and female, and the idea that marriage was supposed to be something that is together in that sense. So uh, yeah. Uh, I don't want to stretch that too much, but that is just something that I noticed. Um, Bryant, what are some things that popped out at you? Well, one thing that uh, is interesting even about that uh, circumstance um, that stuck out to me is verse 6. Just Abraham specifically sending out his other sons that he had uh, to the east. Um, I'll probably say more on that in the theme section, but it's interesting that he has all these different sons um, in verse 2 through 3. And we already know um, we already know that Isaac was miraculous because Abraham was too old to have a son. Uh, and so he's even older at this point. And so it is, it is interesting that uh, Abraham, it seems like this is like we talked about after the death of Sarah. You know, so Abraham would have been incredibly old at this point. And yet he's still able to have uh, all these different children. And I just I wonder if that's you know uh, if it's not too much of a stretch to say that uh, God gave Abraham the ability to have more children, um, seeing as old as he was. Uh, what do you think about that, Stephen? I think it's a very very much a possibility. Um, you know, all all throughout the scriptures, you've got this idea, and I think it's in the Proverbs. Um, I may be getting the passage wrong, but the the idea that children are like arrows within your quiver, um, mm. that they're an honor to you. Uh, so the idea of many children is great honor to uh, to to a man. And this this is, I think, just again, 
this is in some ways part of what God has been telling Abraham. You're going to be a father of many nations. The idea that, that, you know, you're going to be, you know, from you, all these different places are going to come. And, And that's, and that's, pretty clear because among the sons is this uh this uh person named Midian and Midian goes off and there's the land of Midian by the time we get to to Moses so um some familiar names there so I don't think it's a stretch to say that God is just uh continuing to bless Abraham in these ways Mm. you know what another thing that we that, that I think you could just kind of take out of this too the fact that Isaac, what does he do when he finds that Rebecca is barren? He pleads mm. with the Lord uh, right. for her. And uh, I think that's just something for us to think about, too. Um, and just something that kind of I didn't really particularly look at. I don't think Isaac and Rebecca are the first people we think of when we think of couples in the Bible that, that were barren and couldn't have children. Um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I think oftentimes we may think of, uh, uh, Hannah, um, in first Samuel, we might think of, uh, might think of John the Baptist's parents, um, in the book of Luke, but, uh, just, uh, something that really jumped out at me there. I don't think there's an account and maybe I'm just not remembering, but Stephen, do you, do you remember if there's any accounts of Abraham actually praying uh, for God to grant him and Sarah a child? Or if that was just God himself made that promise? I don't recall any kind of... The only thing I really recall is, you know, oh, that Ishmael would live before you. The right. idea that, yeah. that, you know, why can't you make Ishmael the son of promise? Um, that's right, the only thing in, approaching that I can think of. Yeah, because when... In chapter 16, when Sarai, uh, obviously later as Sarah, uh, when she realized that the Lord was restraining her from bearing children, um, her solution was to give Hagar to Abraham and not to pray to God um, for a child on the basis of his promise and for her to be that person. So, And the reason, the reason I point that out is I just think it's interesting that um, Isaac had the faith to pray to God for that uh, when it doesn't seem like there is a distinct event we see, at least written down, where Abraham did that same kind of thing exactly. So I think that's, that's just maybe it's like an inference that because of Isaac's faith, he understands that it's the will of God hmm. and that it's of God and from God since he himself, he is the child of God's promise, right? So he right. understands that life ultimately comes from the Lord. So I just, I think that is really interesting to see that he had the faith to initiate that. Yeah, and again, I, I really do think that Isaac is one of the patriarchs that we just sort of gloss over mm-hmm. because there's just not a whole lot to his story except that he was the son of promise. He was almost offered, um, you know, and, and and so that's about all that we talk about in terms of Isaac. But he did in, indeed have uh, have a great measure of faith, I believe. And uh, I think it's interesting that when the children struggled, that Rebecca as well um, went to inquire of the Lord about that. You know, because you have to think she could have just been, I guess, confused or um, 
uh, just asked uh, Isaac about it or um, just maybe considered it like a medical difficulty or something. So I, I think it's really interesting that it's not just that Isaac had the faith to inqu- to plead uh, and pray for a child, but that when there was a struggle that she inquired of the Lord specifically. So I think it's almost like you see a um, you see a, a great faith in Isaac, but also Rebecca in these ways that are really easy to just gloss over. Yeah, she doesn't just uh, she doesn't leave it up for Isaac to do everything for her, and that's that's right. you know spiritually. And that's an interesting balance there too. Um, maybe we'll we'll go into that a little bit more in terms of uh, application. But um, you know, like um, like Hannah in First Samuel, I mean, she took it upon right. herself yeah. to seek out the Lord right. on this, even though her husband uh, um, Elkanah he was kind of saying, "Listen, aren't I enough for you?" <laughs> and uh, whereas here, she's taking it upon herself to take this time to to seek out the Lord. So that's right. a really good example for us. And you see how important that was too, because in Romans nine twelve, Paul, when writing to the Romans, actually quotes what God said to uh, Rebecca here. And I think it's, it's also interesting that in verse 23, it says, and the Lord said to her. So God actually replied directly to Rebecca for inquiring of him, you know, and what he said, if it's quoted in Romans nine in that way, it's obviously of, uh, of outstanding significance, you know, that she would inquire and that God had the ability to give her this reply. Right. You know, and the Lord, it, there's, uh, there's no evidence in the text that he said this directly to Isaac. So that kind of links up with the idea right. that, um, well, uh, again, this, this pro this is a theme thing, <laughs> but, uh, the idea that the Lord will reveal important messages to women sometimes, um, right. you know, so kind of unexpected, uh, we might say, based on the context of the scriptures and what we see there. Mm. And mm. we we do see some seeds being laid here in terms of Isaac and Rebecca's favoritism. And that is a huge problem that right. is going to really be passed down and and really manifested in the misbehavior of their children. Um, and in terms of Jacob's children is what I mean. Right. And I think it's, it's interesting because Rebecca loving Jacob, you know, cause again, you go back to verse 23 and God tells her, um, I, I don't know if she's told, uh, Isaac, I mean, I'm assuming she would, but she's told explicitly that the older will serve the younger. Right. And that's, that's Jacob. You know, so I think it's not too much of a stretch to relate Rebecca's love for Jacob to be related to that promise that she was given, that it would be the younger who would be the exalted one. You know, and I think that also relates uh, far later when um, Jacob and Esau are getting their blessing from Isaac when he's old. And uh, Rebecca is very clever in trying to make sure that Jacob gets that blessing. You know, I think really you can relate all of that back to what God said to Rebecca in verse 23 and just her holding on to that promise and trying to do everything that she could do to to play her part in that promise when at, it looked like at times that it wasn't going to go the way that God said. Uh, I want to talk about the names of Esau and Jacob, but I think it might be better for us to hold off on that for the next section. Mm. But... Uh, 
because it, it you know that whole event at the end of this really ties in with so much down the road but um mm. you know i i do kind of scratch my head sometimes at this moment you know what in the world was esau thinking but then <laughs> you know i think back like how many dumb things have i done um you know even after becoming a christian um right so maybe we'll get into that a little bit in terms of application as well. So. In Genesis twenty-five, twelve through eighteen, um, it's just kind of interesting the place of these genealogies of Ishmael, um, because that verse um, in Genesis seventeen, verse twenty, where God promises to give Ishmael uh, twelve princes as descendants and to make him a, make of him a great nation. Uh, it's interesting that God notes the fulfillment of that promise uh, in this section. And it's like all of the all of the people who are close to Abraham, you can see God fulfilling his blessing toward them while still separating them out from Abraham um, progressively as Genesis goes on, which I think is interesting. Yeah, there, we, we get less and less about them down the road right mm-hmm. um, and and you know w- which again this doesn't mean that the Lord is not the Lord's fulfilling his promise there's no doubt about that um, but again if if we expected God to write the Bible in such a way where he preserves every shred of knowledge about anybody that could ever possibly be known I mean it would be impractical it would be an impractical book for us to actually study and read. You know, you, you wouldn't be able to look at, at the whole of the text uh, in the in the span of your lifetime. And so uh, we, we focus on what we would really say, see as the core uh, important figures in the story that's unfolding. But uh, but it is great that the Lord preserves these names and make sure that we see that he does follow through on this. I think there's going to be a lot to discuss in terms of the theme section because these are some pretty big things that are being brought about here, right. uh, some big changes. And uh, so as we look at this, you know, when we look at the theme section, we're, we're looking at the greater picture of the scriptures. We want to look not just in Genesis 25, we want to bring in all the books of the Bible all of the knowledge that we have at least of the book and uh, so that we can maybe assemble a big picture of what's going on and make some connections because we need to make those connections. Uh, if we don't make the connections between what's going on here and down the line and in terms of the whole scriptures, it loses a lot of its significance and uh, there, there could be a lot of things, a lot of important things that we're missing 
Um, just the fact that God, you know, we, the last thing we mentioned the last uh, last uh, section was the fact that here God, He's even keeping His promises in terms of this uh, this person that really doesn't have much of anything to do with the promises that are to be fulfilled. Um, you know, this this person is person Ishmael and his family. I mean, there's really nothing moving forward that they're going to do in the span of the greater story of the, of the scriptures. But yet here is here God is making it clear to us, no, I, I deliver on my promises. You know, I don't tell somebody I'm going to do something and then not do it. Um, so uh, just generally, that's some some good things for us to think about. One of the things that uh, we might kind of get the ball rolling with in terms of the theme section, uh, maybe we could kind of go backwards, Bryant, because uh, obviously what happens at the end of this chapter um, changes everything. Mm-hmm. Um, right. In a movie or a TV show where you go back in time and, you know, a character does, you know, decides to do something different than they did before. Or maybe you think of the movie It's a Wonderful Life where just one person being out of the picture supposedly changes these things drastically. Well, um, if there was such a thing as quantum theory where you have all these different universes and there are all these alternate possibilities, then uh, there there, uh, could conceivably be a universe out there where Esau had not sold his birthright. Of course, I don't really believe that to be true. <laughs> I think that uh, I think we've got the reality that we have right here and now. And so, but you think about all the good things that Esau could have been a part of, and the Hebrew author really deals with this very well. And uh, and we want to kind of think about this, but also I want to bring it back up during application. I'm just going to generally talk about in Hebrews 12. Um, there's a discussion there, and we're going to read uh, some of those verses in the next section. But he's warning Christians there, you know, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Um, and, and, it, and it connects the idea of Esau and bitterness, because he talks about the root of bitterness springing up inside us. And so we want to discuss that some in the in the final section today. But but that does tell us that there was some bitterness involved in what Esau did and how Esau, you know, how all this was really brought about. Here's Esau. He could have been the one to continue this great line. And what are, what's so great about this line? Well, it's the messianic line. It's the line that's going to bring about the, uh, the Messiah itself, mm-hmm. the messianic covenant and the importance mm-hmm. of that. Esau could have had that. He could have been... In Jacob's shoes, in this, but because of this, because of the whatever happens in the in in the later chapters, right? And there's some, you know, someone could make a case that well, you know, Esau is tricked out of it. Well, maybe, but if we understand what the scripture is saying, he made this choice before right. any of that ever happened. No, yeah, I think that's such a great point because. Um, Something I, I guess I haven't taken much thought of, and it really just you saying those things um, kind of got gears turning on this. Um, it seems like Isaac really respected that he was the child of God's promise. Um, and just kind of you get some inferences, kind of like 21, where he pleaded and prayed to the Lord for a child. I mean, you know, and then when in chapter 24, 
something we talked about in the last episode, Isaac went out to meditate in the field, you know, in the evening. I just think that's that's a really interesting um, indication that it seems like he really took his faith in the Lord very seriously. Uh, so there's there's just no way that Esau was unaware that he was connected to these promises that God had progressively been making with Abraham and his father. You know, I, I just imagine that Isaac was very diligent, especially with Rebecca as well, that they both would have been really diligent to teach their children about what God was doing and the promises he was making. And so you just imagine for Esau to, at any offer of anything, to give up that birthright. Wow. You know, and for Stu... And I, I think it's almost like an understatement that in verse 34, he despised his birthright. I mean, he, he really just was unconcerned and didn't care, it seems. So let me just think about this out loud for a minute, and maybe I won't get myself into trouble. Uh, but you think about, you know, how did Esau, uh, how did Isaac grow up knowing about mm. Ishmael? Mm. Um, obviously, Abraham is told by God, this is the son of promise. He's the one that's going to be, you know, he's going to be through him. Do you, is it possible that Isaac growing up being reminded that, no, Ishmael is not the son of promise. You're the son of promise. Do you think that might have led him to have more of an appreciation for Esau, mm-hmm. being the one that indeed is going to be the inheritor, the, the you know, and maybe he doesn't quite have the appreciation for Jacob as he ought to have. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I, I, I don't know really, uh, you know, when you get into this moralizing in terms of Old Testament characters, you do have to be careful. But, uh, you know, that is something to think of in terms of, you know, how would these people have really been thinking about this on a normal basis? Um, and so that, that, to me, that may be a possible explanation as to why Isaac is so devoted to to Esau. But we'll see some other things later on because uh, in the chapters to come, we're going to see that Isaac liked the meat that Esau cooked uh, when he came in from the field. So there's that aspect as well, I guess. Yeah, and uh, back a little bit earlier, so in the um, opening comments, I mentioned uh, verse 6, going back to that for just a second, um, that Abraham pushed eyes or not Isaac, but pushed his other sons, the brothers of Isaac, uh, to the East. Um, I don't know if, uh, if you're listening to this, if you've noticed in your reading of the Bible, but the idea of sending someone or something out to the East is, is a very consistent theme in the Bible. Um, for instance, the entrance of the tabernacle and the temple uh, faced east, and so you had to come in through the we- through the east. You know, obviously you'd be facing west, but then you would exit going out towards the east, which would have been facing uh, the sunrise. Um, or was that the sunset? Do I got that right? I always mix the sunrise and the sunset up with with directions. Um, but anyway, no, no, no. Sun- uh, sunrise rises in the east. Yeah. Okay, that's right. So Genesis chapter three. Uh, Genesis chapter three twenty four. after uh, God drives Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, he places the cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, which is interesting. It seems like that would have been the entrance to the Garden of Eden to the east, which is a lot like the tabernacle uh, and temple. Mm-hmm. Um, and then chapter 11, verse 2, you've got the Tower of Babel. 
And chapter 11, verse 2, what do you know? Which direction were the people uh, journeying? It says, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east. So that's kind of interesting. And then uh, chapter 13, uh, verse 11, and where did Lot go to get to the place of wickedness? Lot journeyed east, and they separated from one another. Uh, you know, and Babylon, right. in relationship to Jerusalem, mm. was out east. And Zechariah also has a vision uh, of some women with stork wings, uh, kind of strange, who have a woman in a basket with a lead cover taking that wickedness as what it's called to the east. So you just have all these different uh, references to the east. And I'm not really sure what to make of all that. I just think it's an interesting theme that clearly there's there's purpose in the consistency. Um, and I just think I just think that's 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 it's interesting. Could just be a simple geographical thing though. Maybe. I mean maybe people aren't gonna go to the West because <laughs> uh, that's the sea. <laughs> Uh, oh, that's funny. So, you know, if they're going to the west, they're going to go down to Egypt, right. or they're going to go up north. Um, but you know, maybe that's too simple. But uh, I don't know. Uh, th- there's a there's a lot of significance people make of the east, right? Um, uh, and there's a lot that I could say about that that I'm not really going to go into uh, in this program at this time um, because that gets into some of the research that I've done in terms of secret societies and stuff like that. And, and I don't really look at that stuff as entirely super important, but you know, you bring up the thought that there were wicked things in the East. You know, the East is not this great thing per se. Um, but yeah, uh, there may be some significance there. Um, you know, whether geographically or something else, um, he, he sends them out, that particular uh, direction. And I I do think that is another separation that we see there that is uh, really, it's, I don't think it was out of hostility. I don't get the impression with that from the text. I think it's just something where uh, this is, you know, this is where y'all are going to go, basically. Yeah. And while he was still living, he sent them out that way. Yeah, it seems like it's... uh... You know, it's Abraham's understanding of the exclusive nature of God's promise. You know, cause I, think, yeah. I think we had talked yeah. about this before recording, you know, that uh, Abraham at other points wasn't the one initiating um, separation, for instance, with Ishmael and Hagar. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was more Sarai and then God then confirming to Abraham that he could do what Sarai or what Sarah had um, had said for him to do. Uh, so it's interesting that Abraham is the one initiating this, you know, and it, it was obviously multiple children that he had to do this with, you know, so I just, I kind of, uh, see some adamacy in this. It's a, it's a similar moment to Abram and Lot, uh, separating because I, I do think the subtext is that there could be problems among these family members down the road if they don't just separate now. And I think, again, it speaks back to, I think, um, a few, a couple of months ago, a few, few months ago, we did, a, uh, the episode at profitable for teaching at rustic youth camp, where we talked about that subject that sometimes it's actually needed for us to see the problems that may be on the horizon 
and just go ahead and cut that off and go ahead and say, okay, let's, let's, you know, you go do your thing and I'll go do my thing before it becomes a major problem. So, and maybe, maybe I'm making too much out of this, but the, the, I do think there is a wisdom to this. I mean, what's going to happen? Abraham's gone and then you have all these people in the same place. Well, you know, these other groups could just as well claim, well, we have just as much claim to this land uh, as you do, Isaac, because, you know, Abraham was our father too. But, uh, but Abraham saw well enough to know that this, this is what needed to be done at the time. Uh, I really love the phrasing uh, concerning Abraham's death. I really love that statement in verse 8. Uh, that he died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was, was gathered to his people. What does that mean, gathered to his people? Um, I think the idea of good old age implies the mm-hmm. idea of his faithfulness to the Lord and the fact that the Lord has blessed him for so mm-hmm. long and that the Lord had, had been with him for so long. An old man and full of years. I'll tell you, that's the way that I want to die. <laughs> I don't, I don't mm-hmm. want to die, uh, you know, I don't want to die too soon, right? Nobody wants to die too soon. Um, I think just about everybody wants to die in a good old age, having lived your life with purpose. And, uh, of course, if you're a Christian, you, you want to have this idea that, that, uh, that I'm living my life faithfully in the way that Abraham lived his life. But uh, what, what do you think about that term gathered, uh, that phrase gathered to his people? What might that be talking about? No, that is interesting. Um, isn't that phrase used in some other places in reference to, uh, to kings? Do you remember any of those references? Yeah, just about every ruler, um, especially I think the rulers in Judah, that were mm. said to be very close to David in terms of the way that mm. they ruled and mm. their faithfulness to God, mm-hmm. you know, gathered, uh, gathered to his fathers. And so I think there is the idea of you're, you're going to be buried with others, but, but really when you look at where he's buried, he's buried with Sarah and there's no textual evidence that there's other people in his family that are in that place at Mamre. Mm, unless yeah. I'm mistaken. Right. So gather to his people in this context. My, this is just my, my two cents. Maybe I'm flat out wrong. I get the sense that gather to his people links up to what we see in Hebrews 11. Because what do we see there? Abraham looked for a city mm. that has foundations, that's not made with hands, whose builder and maker is God, uh, looking for that country, looking for that land. You know, he wasn't looking necessarily for, for mm-hmm. Canaan per se. He knew there was something greater down the line. So what if gathered to his right. people refers to the thought that uh, here's, here's a saint of God, we would say, uh, in, in Christian understanding, saints are those who have been saved by God. Um, the term saint is not talking about somebody who's super important or has done X, Y, Z things. Um, a saint is every Christian. Every Christian is a saint. Um, but included with that, I think are, uh, Jews who died faithfully 
under the old law or under what we have here, the time of the patriarchs. So uh, maybe that's a, maybe I'm making too much out of that again, but the idea of being gathered to his people, you know, who are his people? I think his people are, are the faithful of God. I think his people are the saints of God, even up to that time who had, who had been living, you know? So, um, I, I imagine him being gathered together with Noah and gathered together with Adam and, and, and people such as that. What are your thoughts about that? Uh, well, I think, um, that makes a lot of sense. No, cause I guess I hadn't really connected gathered to his people to the fact that Sarah was the only other person buried there. Um, you know, and, and that makes sense as well, because like you were saying, you know, Hebrews makes it evident that Abraham's concern wasn't accumulating uh, some big group of, you know, people after his own name or anything like that. Uh, you know, Abraham's concern was being with the Lord. You know, so what kind of people was Abraham really looking to be gathered with then? And I think that's kind of exactly what you're what you're pointing to. You know, and there have been, obviously, um, those who have been faithful to the Lord before Abraham as well. Um but yeah, I do think, you know, what you pointed out, especially about Sarah being the only other person buried in that location, um, really seems to point to a, a greater meaning to that. So the further genealogy of Isaac, and of course, we want to talk about uh, what's being said to uh, Rebecca and kind of mine some of that out too. two nations are in your womb. Well, down the road, we're going to see, obviously, Jacob. Right, the nation following Jacob. Uh, Jacob is going to be named Israel, and that indeed is the foundation of the nation. You would say uh, that nation is not really even going to become a nation, though I would argue, until they go through the Red Sea after the Exodus, or during the Exodus, I guess you would say. Um, and then Esau's nation is going to be the nation of the Edomites. And uh, we we have the explanation about therefore his name was called Edom, uh, so that that thought of uh, I guess you would say sort of a redness or a, uh, you know Esau's name itself means hairy, and so uh, what's interesting about the Edomites is that up until I would say. I haven't really looked this up recently, but until fairly recently, within the last like 80 years, I think most scholars thought that the Edomites were another made up, uh, quote unquote, made up biblical nation like the Hittites. And that's really funny because you can, you know, a uh, hundred years ago, people would say, you know, well, yeah, the Hittites were never really a people. There's no evidence of them. Um, but now you can actually go to college and major in Hittite studies. Uh, um, similar thing with the Edomites. They found the stone city of the Edomites. It's a city that's been, that was carved literally within the rock, uh, out where they, out where they lived. And, uh, you, you even have, um, you have references to this. Uh, I believe it's an Obadiah, uh, that, you know, you, Edom, who live within the mountain, you think you're strong, but the Lord's going to take care of you, that sort of language, uh, that God was going to bring judgment upon Edom, ultimately. And that's really what what happens. Um, 
so you think about the two people separated from the body of Rebecca. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Well, I think ultimately what we find is that, you know, when was that ever really a thing? Well, it never really was a thing in um, Esau and Jacob's lifetime, was it? Uh, I don't think you ever see a point where Esau serves Jacob personally. Mm. But I do think you see it within the scope of uh, the nations um, themselves. You have times down the road where Edom is going to be subject to Israel. Um, And certainly the idea that, that God is going to bring judgment upon Edom that is within itself a subjection uh, under the purposes of the God of Israel, the God of Jacob, the God of the house of Jacob. And I think again that 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 I think that's why so often you see that phrase being brought up within the scope of the Old Testament, especially like in Isaiah, the God of the house of Jacob. That that title is brought up because that means something that's very important. And it, and it relates to the promise being being made here. Yeah, I mean that it's just so interesting because God is aware of the greater aspects of what He's going to do, uh, leading up to Jesus and even beyond Jesus with the church. Um, there is uh, a verse in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, that's really interesting. Uh, it talks about the mystery, um, the mystery that's been uh, hidden in other ages. It was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and the prophets and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ, the gospel. Um, you know, and who would think that's that's the mystery that God hid within his own mind um, from the before the foundations of the world? And that's just to make the point that God, God knew what he would do and how he would do it. And it's incredible how such profound aspects of that work things that are so awesome and big in their concept and execution god knew these principles so well that he could convey them with such astonishing simplicity with two kids being born and how they were born and how they turned into nations and how those nations interacted with each other. It just, it really amazes me that Moses could write this down by inspiration and that this seed in verse 23, this one verse um, could, could turn into this incredibly important uh, truth of principle that Paul pulls from in Romans chapter nine, when he's talking about, who are God's true chosen people? Is it Israel or is it is it saints, like you said earlier, Christians? And he pulls from that verse in Genesis 25, 23 to make the point that God made it evident, even at the birth of, of Jacob and Esau, that it's not dependent 
on a person earning God's favor or election. It depends on just who God chooses to elect himself and us becoming those elect people. Um, and that's not to say that Jacob was destined to go to heaven and be saved. God was just trying to demonstrate the principle that when he makes a choice, he will be faithful to fulfill the execution of what is involved in that choice. Um, so anyway, it just it's incredible that such a huge concept, such an important concept, something involved in God's eternal working is conveyed in these children being born. And in just one verse, God summarizes these points together. Right. And to sort of dovetail off of that too, um, what we have to recognize is that God indeed is utterly in control of the course of nations. Right. And when God talks on that level, there's typically no escaping that outcome unless that nation as a whole, you know, if, if it's a bad outcome, if that nation as a whole repents and does the right thing, God relents from that destruction. Uh, and such as in the case with uh, Nineveh and the Assyrians, uh, Jonah goes and, and preaches to them and they turn, they do the right thing for a little while. But of course, down the road, we see in the, in the books of the minor prophets, uh, that that Assyria itself, which you know Nineveh was its capital, Assyria was going to come to nothing, and uh, so God can indeed set up these destinies among nations, but but we have to make sure that we see that that's what He's talking about here, and you make that point very well that that you know just because He says this about uh, Esau and Jacob, He's talking about the nations. And you even see in the text, that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about necessarily Esau and Jacob themselves. Right. And as you say, he's using them to say something greater than what's occurring uh, right there in the in their lives. Right. And again, it was it was Esau's choice that brought that about. It wasn't God manipulating things or God uh, saying, "Okay, you know, Esau's not going to be it." Uh, I think up until this point, he probably saw something concerning that, but we've already seen in terms of, for example, when Abraham uh, was going to uh, offer Isaac up for sacrifice, God stopped it. And God took that opportunity to tell him, now I know that you love me, seeing as you haven't withheld your only son from me. Um, I think once Esau made that decision to sell his birthright, that was when God absolutely knew uh, that that Esau was not indeed going to be the son of promise. There, mm-hmm. how, how right. about how about Jacob's name, um, supplanter? Mm. I've heard the term trickster being used in in context of Jacob's name. Uh, what a what a what a crazy name to be born with. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, what if what if. What if your parents had just said, "Okay, I'm I'm going to name him Deceiver." Yeah, or like Joker. I'm going to name him, yeah, Joker. Uh, and, and and we know from the text that it's because of what's you know what goes on. Of course, we always want to keep in mind that the names back then really meant something a lot more than what we typically think of today. But um, 
but we're going to see Jacob uh, for the first part of his life. He's really going to live out that name for a little while. And, uh, but you know, I think there's going to be a change that comes down the line that really helps him understand really who God is in mm-hmm. a way that, you know, he, he, he does not seem to have the same kind of relationship with God that Isaac had or that, uh, his grandfather Abraham had, uh, until down the line, I think things really come together for him, right. even to the point where I really love the moment later on in Genesis where Jacob is talking to Pharaoh and he's, he's describing his life. And uh, I don't recall that particular passage. It was when they went to Egypt, obviously. Um, I think it might be 46, but... Let's see. Where he's basically saying few and and harsh have been my days. That sort of thing. 47, 9 through 10. Very good, yeah. Jacob says to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their pilgrimage. And so Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. Um, I, I just I love that description that Jacob has of his life because initially we're not going to see that Jacob. We're going to see a Jacob mm. that I think um, seems really burdened by his name and by his situation and feels like he has to uh, live up to that basically or, mm. or trick his way around. And he's led that way really by his mother. Mm. Um but down the line, there's going to come a change. There's going to be something different that happens to, to, to Jacob that really helps him understand truly who God is. Mm-hmm. And I think you just see a very different person at the, at the end of that. Yeah, and it's interesting just how God interacts with uh, the individuals in all of this as well. Because you know, this, this is kind of theme and application, but I think more, more theme, uh, kind of like with, with Abraham, um, and some other things we've talked about, you know, just again with verse 21, Isaac pleading with the Lord and that promise of verse 23 and just the, the, the events here. It's like when someone just barely aligns themselves with God's ambition, and I think this is kind of like salvation by faith, not by works, you know, when, when they just barely align themselves how much God does and how much impact God's work has and how how substantial his use of the littleness that these people do, how substantial his use of these things are, is is nearly impossible to actually fathom. You know, like Isaac, all he does is he prays for his wife and the Lord grants his plea and here comes Jacob, who becomes still today uh, Israel, the spiritual name of God's people, uh, just incredible. And just because Isaac pleaded with his wife. Now, God was looking to do that, right? But that's that's the point, that when we align ourselves with things that God is ambitiously striving for, uh, how much God invests in that and how much resource he gives for that cause and, and how much work and sacrifice he, he undertakes himself to, to fulfill that is incredible. You know, and I love how God chooses to interact for the fulfillment of those things. It's the concept that 
when you pray for something that you know that God wants, the answer right. will always be yes. Oh, right. Exactly. You know, and, and this should just give so much confidence in those things. But but again, just on, on the theme, you know, we've seen that with Abraham already so much. And that's just something we're going to see more and more of as we go on is, you know, God interacting with individuals in just astounding ways, which he still does today uh, in, in, in the grandest and greatest of ways uh, through the simplicity of the church and in quietness in committing committing oneself to good deeds done in righteousness God continues to do grandiose things that are hard to perceive um, simply because those those works that God accomplishes um, really are noticeable only to the humble uh, and just like just like Isaac himself humbling himself here um, I may be making way too much out of this but you know, just kind of interesting that it says in the New King James that Jacob was a mild man. Uh, you know, he's a peaceful man dwelling in tents. And really, it's interesting that in contrast to being a skillful hunter, I mean, uh, Jacob being the father of uh, God's true nation, you know, that saints are supposed to be just quiet and peaceable. And actually, uh, this just crossed my mind, but in Revelation... Um, Ooh, let me get there really quick because I just kind of thought of this off the cuff. This, again, you know, this may be making too much of something, but in verse, uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 9, it talks about the nations of the world being gathered together, Gog and Magog, to surround uh, God's people, and it says they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city. Um, and I know it says beloved city, but the camp of the saints seems to infer just a, a camp of people kind of dwelling in tents with only God being their protection. You know, they don't have a fortress, they don't have a wall, they don't have weaponry or, uh, you know, any kind of defense. Um, and I just think it's, it's interesting that Jacob dwelt in tents, and that's that's kind of the image that you get of of God's people continuously is is a very mild and peaceful people uh, who are um, very gentle and defenseless, but whom God by His faithfulness protects. It's the it's the children of Israel, right? Yep. Um, and and what's interesting there too is that there was so much in, importance in the old covenant as to who was allowed inside the camp versus who needed to go outside of the camp. And right. uh, that dividing line was very important. And, and uh, uh, you know, regardless of, again, we don't want to moralize. So uh, we don't want to, uh, what I mean by moralize is we don't want to try to take what we have and push it on these people that did not live under the similar circumstance, Right. Right, But we can appreciate that these brothers are different to be able to show, you know, again, what are, what is division? What is separation supposed to show? Well, um, Paul says that division, uh, can, you know, ultimately shows who's faithful to God. Um, and, and, and you know, so those who are, are right will be made manifest. He talks about divisions of first Corinthians, and uh, division is not always a good thing, but we can appreciate those things that, that, that separate those who want to do the right thing and those who don't. 
And I think even though we're going to see some nastiness, we're going to see some bad things that Jacob's going to do. Uh, again, we go back to why did Esau make this choice? Well, there was some root of bitterness in him where he didn't appreciate what he had as much as he should. And so he gave it up for a bowl of stew, bowl of lentils, you might say. Now we want to go into our final section, and of course we can read these things, we can study, we can pick all these things apart, but uh, if we do not apply these things to ourselves, then uh, we lose the power of the scriptures, and we, we miss something very, very serious. And so just as we think about this uh, overall, um, I, I do think the kind of going in the flow of the chapter this time, maybe, uh, you know, Abraham, he knows who the son of promise is. There's no question in his mind. And so when he has these other children, he makes sure that he makes provisions that there's not going to be this problem after he's gone. I think that's a great lesson for us to understand. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so many families, I think, get into particular trouble, you know, and, and what is that trouble typically surrounded over? It's surrounded over money. Um, the, the grandparents or the parents die and sometimes families will fight about how do we divvy this up? Um, just the, the, that whole basic idea, that thought that, that we're going to fight over this stuff. And, uh, that's a general thing, but I think we can take from this that, that being prepared in this way, having that foresight, and of course the greater foresight that Abraham had, that he, he this is a man who's who died in a good old age, an old man and full of years. I'm not sure that that would have been the case if he had decided not to follow God. If all the way back uh, when he was in the Ur of the Chaldees, among really uh, false religions and idolatry uh, among his family. Uh, I think if he had declined to follow God at this time, I don't think he would have died uh, 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 in this way, right? Gathered to his people. Again, I really think that we're talking about being gathered to the faithful. So or am I going to be gathered to faithful saints when I die? Am I going to be gathered to God's people? Or am I going to be going somewhere else? Very important question for us to think about. So, for one, I think uh, verse 21 again, where Isaac prayed to the Lord. I think this is something we've talked about before, but I think every opportunity that we have to talk about this is good for me, and I'm sure is good for anyone who's listening as well. Um, just the fact that God listened to Isaac's plea and prayer and granted it, and how much came from that, and just how much encouragement I need to constantly see how eager God is to hear the prayers of his people. Um, and I think there's purpose in that as well, uh, because, you know, God wants to establish 
in us a willful seeking and reliance on him that elicits gratitude and joy, especially in the acknowledgement that every good gift is really actually from him and that he makes the choice to give those things. Um, you know, cause God could have given, he could have given Isaac children without him asking. You know, I think the inference seems to be that they probably had tried to have children before and they had to discover that she was unable to have children through trying and failing, right? Uh, so if God could have, why didn't he? And I think it's because of desiring to establish that relationship that cultivates faith. And I think you see that a lot in the Psalms. Um, but just the, the, the note, though, just that prayer is something that uh, I need encouragement to continue to strive to be more diligent in prayer, more fervent in prayer, and to understand just how zealous God is to listen and to act on the prayers of the things that are clearly in accordance with his will. And so just to have more confidence in prayer, more uh, more zeal, to be more fervent for the things that uh, God outlines that he's, he's seeking for us to seek ourselves through him. Of course, James in James chapter 4 talks about, uh, you know, you fight, you, you lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain, you fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. Right. You ask and do not receive because you ask and miss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Uh, so the idea of asking God in the right way with the right mindset, um, yeah, that's a great lesson for us. Um, how often have we faced an issue in our lives and we don't approach God about it, um, or, or you know, we just don't think about it. Maybe it's an ignorant thing, or maybe we're consciously thinking, "Well, you know, God's not going to help me out with that." Well, we need to be reading our Bibles and understand that yes, He does want to help us out with those things, and right. uh, us us telling Him about our troubles that's not burdening Him. He He can shoulder the burden. He can take care of it uh, in our lives would be so much better uh, i think if we if we learned that very very important thing right you know and there's a lot of psalms where the psalmists feel as if there's a barrenness in relation to god's promises in their time uh so not with like you know children physical children but with what they know god is seeking to do and what is not happening or what has happened. For instance, Psalm 89 is an example. And I won't read but a couple verses of the beginning of the psalm, but the psalm ends with the psalmist actually acknowledging that it seems like he's living in the time when Jerusalem has been destroyed. You know, and Jerusalem was the place of God's promise. It was the place where his name was to dwell forever. And promises were made to David that the psalmist is talking about specifically. And he acknowledges at the end of the psalm that God is cast off and abhorred and been furious with his anointed. He's renounced his covenant, profaned his crown, broken its hedges and destroyed it. And his throne's been cast down. And he asks in verse 46, how long, Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? And it seems like that question is not asked in an absence of faith, but actually a heart full of faith. And I say it especially because of verse 1 and 2, where he says, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. Your faithfulness, uh, your faithfulness you shall establish in the very heavens. 
And so he starts the psalm with the assurance that once he gets to the hopeless appearance, he understands already how amazing it is that he knows that God, by his mercy, will build the city back up that he's promised. He will fulfill his promises. Now, that does not take away the present barrenness and the distress of it. But what the psalmist chooses to do is to trust in who God is and draw closer to God in that barrenness. And so that's just one example of the Psalms of of that principle taken to a fuller place later in the scripture. And that's really the key, isn't it? I mean, we have so many examples of people seeking out God and asking him why. Right. Why is this the situation? Um, and, and, and actually bringing up the charge. This is not just, this is not right. Um, but of course the, the, the key is, you know, don't reject him, uh, listen to him, let him, uh, show you what the right way is. And what that will do is it'll help you because it'll help you understand and see, well, you know, I thought I really understood this. I thought that there was nothing but darkness. I thought there was nothing but bad here. But you, O Lord, you know, you, the Lord will show us that there's always this silver lining. There's always this good uh, aspect to what we've been given. And or he may show us, he may help us see through his scriptures a way to improve the situation in good in good ways. Right. So, um, yeah, a lot a lot of good things for us to to consider there. I think, too, uh, when the Lord tells us uh, basically what's uh, what's going on, we need to trust him in those things. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the fact really is that, you know, overall, I think one of the biggest lessons of this chapter is don't sell your birthright, period. Right. You know, what, what if, what if Jacob actually had something of worth, value, uh, to Esau other than food um, it still wouldn't have been worth what he gave up and uh, I think there are so many today you know going back I mentioned that we would read uh, the bigger passage Hebrews 12 14 through 17 and I really like the way uh, it's rendered in the King James yeah. the old King James follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. I think part of what that's talking about in terms of Esau, you know, seeking repentance and finding a place of repentance, I don't think that's necessarily talking about uh, repentance in terms of his own salvation personally. I think it's speaking more toward the fact that, you know, he would have loved for things to be back to the way it was. And uh, we're going to see in in a, a chapter or two, the fact that he's expecting to still get that blessing <laughs> somehow maybe in his mind he thought that what that moment with 
Jacob must not have mattered because he's still expecting to get the blessing from his father Isaac, mm-hmm. but he doesn't. And the reason ultimately is is because he he gave up on that. He he, you might say, uh, you know, he abdicated. He kind of said, "No, that's not something that I want." Um, by his actions. And so uh, this is something that's very, very needed for us to understand that bitterness uh, is something that's very much tied to someone who, for example, if I'm a Christian, I've been given these great promises. I'm part of this inheritance. This is what we've been talking about this whole time in terms of Abraham, that if I'm a Christian, I have this same inheritance. I have these same promises, that we're part of this whole same thing. What happens if I give that up? If I give that up, it's just like Esau. There's no other possibility. There's no other sacrifice. There's no other path than what God has laid before me. And so if I give that up, I've given up everything. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting because the context of Hebrews really speaks to that point of how glorious our our inheritance is. For instance, Hebrews 2, 3 says that our salvation is so great. Uh, And then he continues on in that same chapter talking about how we have become, who are Christians, brethren of Christ and inheritors of the same promise that he himself inherited. Um, You know, to think about again, if we can look at this example and see that Esau did something just ridiculous uh, you know, how, like, like you, you mentioned this at the beginning, um, already, but how ridiculous it is when we, uh, and, and really to be more personal when I not only, cause I think an application for me is not just the idea of forfeiting the promise, but also not actively valuing the promise. I think that's something I really struggle with as well, because it seems like Esau was basically just ready to give it away. Like, for instance, it looks like Jacob was doing, he was looking for an opportunity to take it because he valued it. And Esau, because he didn't value it, was looking for a reason to give it away. Um, Because kind of like what we were talking about earlier, you think about everything that Esau absolutely heard that ought to have made him value that birthright so highly that he would protect it and covet it and never let it go for any reason, right? But you could also think about the burden that he could feel like it placed on him, like, oh, great, you know, I've got to live up to this grand expectation, you know, and I didn't ask to be a part of this huge plan that apparently the God of the universe is working out, and here I am in the midst of all this, you know, and you could imagine almost feeling um, frustrated or angry that he's got some obligation to this thing that he didn't even put himself into, but he was born into, you know, um, you know, and so we just, as, as Christians, we really need to constantly saturate our minds with the understanding of what scripture speaks to that, what we've attained and how we've attained it and what God has sacrificed for us to obtain it. Um, you know, it, it should be our attitude, not just to never give up on our faith, to never forsake our faith, to never give up the inheritance that God has given us, but, to more actively engage ourselves in it more and more and constantly looking more intently at just how valuable it is. And that really is really, it's the overall exhortation of the Hebrew letter. Uh, You know, he's making that, that point in Hebrews 12 in the context of trying to motivate the Hebrews who are close to the point of just giving up 
to understand what they've received and what that ought to elicit as a response uh, from them in relation to what they've received. Um, so I think it's very, it's very relevant and applicable um, to us in so many incredible ways. Uh, I guess what, what, what are some more thoughts you have on that, Stephen? I'd love to listen to more about what you have to say on that. Well, I mean, the only thing I was, I've been thinking a lot about, uh, you know, what, what Peter said to Jesus in John six, you know, uh, Jesus says something that's very challenging Mm. and you have all these disciples leave and Jesus turns, you know, you're going to leave too. And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Um, I am blessed to work with a local congregation of saints who I believe, um, based on everything I know of them and my closeness to them, uh, they have invested themselves in this local work to such a point where uh, they have uh, removed any other possibilities. Um, And I don't mean that by saying they've... uh, burn bridges and, you know, things like that. I don't think that's the case at all. Um, but I do think that this is a situation where these are brethren who have invested themselves in the work to the point that, you know, there's no other question about where they're going to be on Sunday morning. There's no question about where they're going to be Wednesday evening. And it's such a wonderful, uh, thing to be among saints like that. Um, and, and it, 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 helps me to realize that I need to make sure in my life, not just to hold on to the path, but to make sure to tear down any other alternatives, um, to center myself on this. Uh, Esau had a possibility. I mean, he, he had this other path that he went on and he, why, why was that there? Because he gave that path to himself. Uh, he provided that path to himself, that, that idea that, okay, yes, I'm going to sell my birthright for this stew. And no matter what he might have thought about that at the time, whether he thought that was important or whether he thought that was just minor, uh, the Lord saw it as important. And the Lord recorded it for us all to see. And uh, that that's one of the things that, that I've just certainly been thinking of recently, this idea that you, you need to conscientiously make it a point to say it's not just that I'm going to be faithful to the Lord. I'm going to make it so that I'm not faithful to anything else or right. anyone else. Yeah. I think gratitude is such a big part of that. You know, like I think Esau was not focused on the grace of God's promises. You know, he he may have been aware of the responsibility. So, you know, being in a certain place, uh, being a certain way, uh, following certain ways of living, um, but he certainly, with the attitude that he had, you know, it's it's very apparent. And the Hebrew writer points this out as well that his 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 view of grace, he just he didn't have any perception of the greater grace involved in the things that God had promised. But Jacob clearly did, which I think is why he was so adamant on getting that getting that inheritance somehow. And he sees the opportunity. And it's kind of interesting on that note in terms of application. Check this out. Go to Hebrews twelve verse twenty eight. I think it's very interesting how the Hebrew writer himself makes these same points at the concluding part of the letter because the Hebrews were in danger of not valuing or perceiving the grace of what they had received themselves. 
But look at verse 28 of 12. He says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace. Wow. How can it be that simple? By which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Now, go to chapter 13, and I think this is very interesting in verse uh, 13 through 15. It says, uh, I'm sorry, verse 14. So after it talks about uh, bearing the reproach of Christ and following him and sacrificing ourselves for, for his sake, in verse 14 it says, For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. And just, wow, it's really, you know, that's that that's a part of this grand task that God has assigned to us is just be thankful and see the grace that we've received. And there's other applications in Hebrews 12 and 13, but but really I do think that gratitude and thankfulness really puts our perspective in such a humble place and protects our heart against bitterness. Uh, because bitterness just sets the focus on such small and insignificant things and completely blinds the perspective from seeing the grandiose aspects of God's glory in ways that could completely change my perspective out of a perspective that is narrow and bitter. Um, so this this warning, I think, is is needful. Um, it's it's startling, you know, just how much Esau gave up and and for how little. Yes, bit, bitterness, I would say, is the poison that kills Christians, uh, by and large. Right. Yeah. Amen. Um, because you know we can talk about being unfaithful, we can talk about leaving the church and things like that. Yeah, but that's indicative of a bigger problem. If someone lashes out at you, there's a reason they're lashing out at you. If someone stops being involved with a local congregation, there's a reason for that. That doesn't just happen out of the blue. Um, you know, Christians, when you see somebody not at services and you come to understand that they weren't sick, that they, you know, it wasn't some kind of other issue, they weren't traveling, they chose not to be there. What that should do for us is kick us into almost alert status to know that by that point there's already a problem. And maybe there's been a problem, but we haven't really seen it. And so we need to reach out. But unfortunately, a lot of times when someone is bitter, they will even resist uh, someone uh, openly and, and honestly trying to, to help them. Um, but at any rate, uh, I think one of the interesting things here, too, is the, the greater lesson of Esau that we're talking about in terms of bitterness is there. But, you know, we're going to see an Esau uh, not too long from now. Um, after all these things happen between him and Jacob, that is not, uh, you know, Jacob is very scared about facing Esau, but Esau comes back and they're very, uh, you know, very loving toward each other, I would say. Uh, oh, yes, right. No, and that's such a good point to bring up because Esau could not get his birthright back, period. And Esau would not be the nation that God would work through to bring the Messiah but Esau, the individual, could repent, and it seems that he did. So I'm really happy you brought that up. And that's that's a pretty good way for us to uh, kind of end up right now, um, because we're we're going to see some yeah. other things in terms of Jacob and Esau. But uh, but we'll hold that on for next time. Brian, did you, did you have anything else before we finish? 
Nope, just as as usual. It's just such an encouraging study. Well, uh, the the feeling is absolutely mutual. So, uh, thank you so much for listening today. We hope this podcast is useful for you. Uh, if you would just contact us at any time, and uh, uh, happy to talk to you about the show. Uh, if you have any ideas about, you know, maybe there's a topic you would like for us to cover. Uh, we can definitely do that. Just because we're going through the book doesn't mean that we can't stop and look at a particular subject. Uh, or if you have uh, any questions that you would like answered, we'd be happy to take a look at that as well. Uh, email us at walkingthroughthebook@protonmail.com or message us on Facebook. Um, next time, Lord willing, we will be dealing with Genesis chapter 26. Until that time, study well. Be lights to God's glory. The music on this podcast is provided courtesy of Symphonia. Visit their website at symphonia.com. Walking Through the Book is created and promoted with the support of the North Columbus Church of Christ in Columbus, Mississippi. Find out more at northcolumbuschristians.com. The website of the Garden City Church of Christ in Savannah, Georgia is gardencitycoc.org.